since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. Hi, Maiden. Hi, Lindsay. And you're listening to the Bix Pod. This episode, we're talking about Richard II, uh, one of the less produced uh, history plays, I yep. would say. Uh, it is, but an important one. It is an important one. Part of the the uh, Henriad. Yes. And uh, it concerns events that lead up to the Wars of the Roses, which yep. we already covered in great detail when we covered uh, the Henry VI plays and uh, Richard III. Yep. So um, this is the kind of the prequel. Yeah. This is this, this is, is the, the start of the prequel. Yeah. Because, the start of the prequel. Yeah. It's yeah. a pre-prequel. Because there are uh, three more plays after this one that form up the rest of the tetralogy. Yeah. Uh, the, the first two parts of Henry the Fourth yeah. and Henry the Fifth. Yeah. And uh, this one is kind of the inciting incident, I yeah. would say. Uh, and it's it's an interesting play which we're gonna we're gonna dive into. But uh, before we go too much farther, we are going to do our semi-patented i don't think you can patent something like this <laughs> no uh, our uh, 30 second summary of the play it's my turn unfortunately it is uh so be prepared for about 24 seconds of the first scene and then, <laughs> and then six, six seconds, seconds rambling of, of, yeah of trying to catch up so Lindsay, do me the honors let me know when to go uh you tell me when you're ready I'm ready. All right. Three, two, one, go. So Richard II is king of England, and there's two nobles who want to kill each other because they don't like each other, and Henry's going to let him, or no, Richard, Richard. Richard's going to let them kill each other, but then he stops them and he banishes them instead, uh, and then he goes fight a war in, in Ireland, and meanwhile, one of them, who later becomes Henry IV, comes back and usurps his throne, and that's basically the whole plot. <laughs> uh, what we, else we get is Richard complaining a lot, uh, you know, whining a little bit, uh, getting told put in his place. Uh, and then eventually getting killed. I have to say, okay, there's you like did, two there, and a half seconds yeah, of extra time on this dead one. Dead air. I'm Whew. like a little bit... Uh, You're impressed, aren't you? A little bit impressed. Yeah, yeah. it was sexy. Um, <laughs> I was a little worried at the beginning because you spent a lot of time getting names wrong. Is uh, That that we can patent. That is yeah, definitely that, yeah, Aiden that's, that's uh, special a specialty. Here. That's for sure. Um, but yeah, you covered the bases. I think this is, this is one of those interesting plays that um, has grave historical context that is as i said we covered in our wars of the roses episode but it does deal with deposition king Mm -hmm. kingly depositions and the divine right of kings which was so important at this time Mm -hmm. and um especially when you have a king or sorry a king a queen like gloriana elizabeth the first on the throne struggling with her own succession and uh um, plots to remove her from the throne, which yes. we'll get into. Yeah. Which Richard II play uh, a very important role in as a yeah. plays an important role in as a yeah. play. So, um, so just briefly some context for this play. Um, it was written around 1595, probably. Yeah. Uh, it's one of only I think four plays that are written entirely in verse. If you remember, um, Shakespeare typically saves his uh, iambic pentameter verse 
um, speech for highbrow, highborn, uh, highborn characters. characters. Yeah. In this play, the entire play is in verse, and I I feel like it helps the play flow. As as a reader, I was mm-hmm. able to follow it a lot. Um, yeah, and even more. watching it, there's a yeah. certain yeah, there's a certain uh, vibrancy to the to the language and the way that the there's a there's a couple rhyming sections. Like it, it's it's one of the plays that felt better. Um, as verse, uh, yeah. you wouldn't. You, I couldn't imagine. Yeah, many characters here naturally falling into a prose kind of. No, and even when use. when it's you know characters like the gardener who comes in talking mm-hmm. about apricot apricots, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the the fruits and everything that they're talking like those are characters that you would normally they would be vulgar, just you know broad. Um, yeah, they're, maybe they're for comedic purposes only yeah. to make. Fun but it would of just the, be prose. Yeah, and and here I'm. Um, the things that they talk about are lent to kind of a weight almost yeah. by by the use of, exactly. of verse. So it is kind of interesting to read that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know why he chose why Shakespeare chose to write four plays entirely in verse and 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 not, not others. others. But um, this one, I think yeah. I think it's something that since we've read the poems and the sonnets. I've come to really appreciate when Shakespeare does lapse into verse. There are, there are some times where I'm like, oh, well, you, that's a really wordy way to say that, but it fits <laughs> with the rhyme scheme, so I'm going to let it slide. Yeah. Uh, but it does show, a, a, I guess, a talent. Yeah. The, uh, Shakespeare had a talent I guess, for it, I guess. you wanted to say, yeah. Um, and, yeah, so it, it deals with this idea of the divine right of kings, which, um, again, something very important that was being... Uh, struggled with, I guess, yeah. and and was a concern throughout the Middle yeah. Ages and into the Renaissance. Well, in, yeah, in Shakespeare's contemporary time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. and uh, and as we mentioned back in our Wars of the Roses episode, Richard II was really only the second king to be deposed. The first one was um, Edward the Second. Edward yeah. III's father. Oh, okay. Yes, he was the one who was uh, a poor ruler and, and possibly murdered with a hot poker up the bum. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and then <laughs> Edward III was the great yeah. Edward who yeah. reigned for forever. Yeah. Um, and then his son died before he could take the throne, and so his grandson, Richard, assumed the throne after that yeah. and led to a crisis of... Um, uh, rulership. Well, yeah, and I mean, who who should inherit the throne if a child at ten is is the eldest son of the eldest son? Mm. Should they be the one to assume the throne? And this play really deals with a lot of that, as we see Richard's uncles, who are all sons of the former King Edward the Third, John of Gaunt, the Duke of York, yeah. um, the murdered Duke of Gloucester. Gloucester yeah. These are all characters who could have assumed the throne in place of their dead brother Edward the Black Prince. But instead, their nephew yeah. assumed the throne. And so their children are the ones who, children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are the ones who later initiate the claims to the throne that lead to the Wars of the Roses. Yeah. So um, it kind of, the seeds of it are all kind of in this yeah, this, story this initial here. story. And it's in the, it's even in the language there, you know, at one point, I think it's York, perhaps, mm-hmm. who, when Richard is going to be killed or something like that says oh uh, woe to the people of england yeah. because there's going to be nothing but strife because of this yeah uh and of course that's it's not even it's not really prophetic i mean i guess it is in, no in well it is play, in the sense but... that shakespeare's hindsight was 2020 um <laughs> yeah exactly but it it's it's one of those dramatic irony moments i yeah. think where the audience definitely would know that yeah. of course strife is going to come to the kingdom if you depose a king which yeah. is you know a uh 
a step too far. Yeah. Oh, Richard himself takes a lot of steps that kind of push the boundary of yes. what is acceptable behavior. And as we mentioned again in our Wars of the Roses episode, um, he wasn't the worst king that England ever saw. He did do some good things. He stamped down the peasants' revolt. Whether you're on the good side or bad side of that is up to you. But um, <laughs> but he did do some good things. And, and, and this is kind of showing some of the negative aspects of kingly leadership that um, really force a commoner audience to question, Do am I going to let this guy get away with it? Mm. Am I going to let this guy get away with disinheriting um, his cousin after his father's death and taking all of his lands away from him even though he's been banished? Yeah. You know, is that really going to be okay? Yeah. And, and if it isn't, what do we do about it? Mm -hmm. Is there another way to choose a ruler? So it, <laughs> it does have some interesting... Um, yes. Uh, political undertones would you say yeah and ramifications i mm -hmm. think are, are is the way to put it uh yeah so i guess we can kind of get started with a, a discussion indeed you have notes where you want to start well or? no i i think it's i mean where you you kind of let off with uh the divine right of kings is kind of a central theme and discussion point within mm -hmm. the play it's 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 questioned and thought of by a lot of the characters um interesting i think i think it is, as much as the play is concerned about the divine and rulers and kinship, it's more than anything a very good character portrait play uh, mm -hmm. for especially two characters, Richard himself um, and York, who is in some ways a... Uh, uh, he's the last surviving son of Edward III. Yeah, by the end of the play he is. By the end of the play. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he has this interesting role where he kind of acts as the uh, moral voice of the nation writ whole. Yeah. Um, in that he, he he owes allegiance to England above yeah. and beyond everything else. And the king represents England. So whoever is on the throne is who he will pledge allegiance to. Exactly. And he, but to, even to that, but he doesn't because he doesn't play, he doesn't stick by Richard II because he's kind of dissuaded by uh, Henry IV's reasoning. He's like, oh yeah, well, yeah, you should be the Duke of whatever. And, and then eventually he joins uh, Rich, uh, Henry IV and completely abandons Richard II because I feel the play at least leads us to believe that Richard was not a good king. Uh, in fact, it's pretty blatant about this in some of the things. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, that's one of the weaknesses of the play is the fact that it's not, um, it's not t showing that Richard is a bad king. Mm -hmm. It literally just tells you it's like, oh, and he's, you know, he's bankrupting the peasants and he's, the only thing he does that's really, really bad is yes, he takes, uh, the Duke of Lancaster's lands after he dies. Yeah. Uh, th that are supposed to go to Henry, uh. Bolingbroke. Bolingbroke, which is who becomes Henry the Fourth, which is kind of again the, the inciting incident for Henry's uh, eventual overthrow of Richard the Second. Um, but beyond that, it's it's not really good at showing that he was a bad king. It's more about the play, at least, is focused more on was he a good person? Did he understand his role, um, and should he be? punished for his actions and that's something that i yeah that was the first thing that i wanted to talk about is the 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 kind of dueling nature of the king mm -hmm. the body of the king and the body of the man who is the king mm -hmm. and how these are two um facets of richard's character that 
um, are kind of in conflict a lot of the time. When yeah. he is king and at the beginning of the play, I am going to push back a little bit on your your assertion that the play doesn't show him being a bad king because I think his yeah. indecisiveness and the things that he does kind of show that. Yeah, um, to an extent. You know, for example, when he um, has the Thomas Mowbray and Richard or Henry Bolingbroke duel to solve the yeah. the issue of who's the bigger traitor, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then waits until the minute before they're about to start combat before he throws down and His, says, "No, yeah. we're stopping everything, yeah. and I'm I have I mean, made a new decision." Instead, yeah. um, Absolutely no. I like agree. I think I think there are situations like that where it shows him being not. Um, kingly mm-hmm. i think in the sense that a king should know what he wants to do and do it yeah. and not second and have that sense of justice from the exactly. outset you know if yeah so yeah. and that's that's where we've seen henry the sixth fall he doesn't really have that backbone and and lets other people run over him and in this case richard is kind of his own worst enemy because he doesn't have the forthrightness of character i think mm-hmm. that would allow him to make a decision and stick with it um but that's where the that that duality comes into play, where there's a man underneath this, and mm-hmm. that man is a very interesting character. Yeah. The king, I agree, he's not a, he's good, not a king. good king. He's not portrayed <laughs> as a good king yeah. in this play. And he has all of these problems with, yeah, uh, asserting authority and then um, uh, being cocksure about his people's love for him that he doesn't even go to meet henry's army he just lets him advance to his castle and uh and he's just he's so his arrogance almost is is embarrassing it's it's like yeah yeah you know because he's he's just so so full of himself yeah um because he so believes in his right to be king that Mm -hmm. divine right of kings which he honestly i think believes will save him from everything but once that's taken away from him and we see him in from about act four through to act five through to his death anyway yeah. um we see the man come out and the scene where he's actually giving the the crown over to henry mm-hmm. um yes. there's some there's some really touching and poignant moments there that that really underscore how um who that man is and and it's it's not being like i I'm, i don't know how to bow how to bend the knee let's take yes, the yes. i don't know how to do this because i've been raised to be a king and and nobody has ever i've never yeah. been anybody i've never subject. had to flatter somebody yeah. yeah so give me some time my grief is my own i you can be king but you can't take my grief over losing my crown yeah. away from me and there's a very human aspect to that same with when he parts from his queen um yeah. It's it's a very mm-hmm. human moment. He's a very it's a human character. Yeah. And I think that is something that is it's an interesting contrast to see cuz there's no other king that I can think of off the top of my head right now where we see him after he loses I guess 6, Henry yeah, the 6. Henry the well, sixth. He, and he's a very there interesting is, yeah, Yes, and, I guess that's true. And it's a similar kind of situation. It is. Because, except for in that one, Henry VI didn't really kind of want to be king. And right, right. It plays and a little so more different about him. Yeah. It's a different, I guess that's why I forgot it. Because it's not, it doesn't really have that same ring. Richard really wants to be king. He believes he yeah. deserves it. And he loses it. And he doesn't really understand why. And I think that's what makes this, I'm going to argue, a tragedy. Because it's, it's something that feels um, like he's just clueless and mm-hmm. and he doesn't get it 
But that doesn't stop him from having all of those emotions. Yeah. I think that's what's interesting about Richard II to me. I agree. And I, I think he is... It, it is a really interesting character exploration. Uh, and I think the, the fact that um, it parallels nicely with Elizabeth's situation is not an accident. I think not in the sense of, you know, being deposed, although we mm-hmm. will get to that story shortly. Um, but the fact that there is a woman mm-hmm. uh, who has all the, you know, am I, have I not eyes and, you know, bleed and whatever thing. Uh, and then there's a queen who must, right. you know, uphold the crown. And, yeah. uh, you know, we watched that, uh, the film Mary Queen of Scots, where right. it really explored that situation yeah. in the entirety because there was one woman who tried to have both and then one woman who was like, nope, I'm just going to be the queen. Yeah. And she made that decision and it worked out great for her country, not mm-hmm. so great for her personally, perhaps, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um and I think Shakespeare is kind of exploring that similar situation where, uh, in this case, it's taken out of Richard's hands in terms of what happens with the with the country, mm-hmm. but uh, his own internal processing processing of that uh, situation is on full display, yeah. and it is it is very kind of humanizing uh, in a way that would make I think the audience very naturally think like, oh yeah, our queen. She's a person yeah. too, you know, like yeah. it's, it's just something inherent to, to that. And I think it's, I think it's one of the Shakespeare's best, uh, attributes is the fact that he could humanize, he could his... humanize, but also respect when they, that when they face those difficult decisions yeah. between having a, a human personal right. side and a political necessary side. Yeah. And I think there's, there's one scene that comes to mind. Um, well, there's a couple of scenes that, that really tie Richard to the land when he when he mm-hmm. arrives back in the land and kisses the ground and yep. there's a lot of that there's, there's a lot <laughs> you know when they're banished they talk about not being able to breathe the air and speak the tongue of England and it's it's a very you know England plays a very important role in this in this play but when Richard um, comes back from fighting in Ireland and kisses the ground it's it's that that sense of of him coming back to himself because he is England, right? Mm-hmm. And when um, when he and his men sit on the ground and talk about the death of kings, that mm-hmm. famous speech from Richard II, um, I feel like that is the the crystallizing moment for me where the two halves kind of come together, mm-hmm. and we have a king sitting on the ground, being part of himself, connected with himself, but talking about um his place in this line of succession and and this grand tradition that at this point only went back to 1066 but you know there there is a history there mm-hmm. and and it's a it's a kingly history but there's something very human about it and when you see it performed we watched the royal shakespeare company performance yep. where david tennant plays richard ii yeah and the staging of it was really something spectacular. And to see a king sit on the ground, it's very much like Henry V when he goes out before, yeah. you know, the Battle of yeah. uh, Agincourt and, and meets yeah. with his men in secret, right? Yeah. There's there's a very kind of... Um, Humbling experience. Yeah. 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 And that is so strikingly human. I think that's what makes this such a... Um, an interesting character study for me is that is that I can't see... Richard II is a villain. I almost want to see Bolingbroke as a villain, which is yeah, weird because it's it not. Sets it up, yeah. It does, right? But it's not who you expect to well, it, be it, the villain. Yeah, and it kind of, well, yeah, but it kind of is. But at the same yeah. time, it, it it can't go too far down that road because right. he knows what's coming next well, yeah. in the next play. He's got to make this guy, or at least his son, yeah. the hero. Yeah. And so he doesn't make 
Bolingbroke out to be a tyrant mm-hmm. or, you know, in all respects, he's considered the better of the two options yeah. for King. But at the same time, he is usurping. Yeah. And so it 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 does, you know, it doesn't shy away from that fact. Right. Um, even as it, you know, and, it, and Bolingbroke is not a character really in this play. He, he has yeah. like no clear motivations. There's a whole thing about like who killed Gloucester. And at the end of it, Lindsay and I talked about like, do you know who, who killed who Gloucester? I, I have no idea. I mean, I feel like like the play is setting us up to believe that Richard did. <laughs> yeah. That he or that he had a hand in it. Yeah. And that all these other people just can't say that because he's the king. So But even when he's not the king anymore, they don't yeah, come I out don't, and say it. And and yeah. there are other people who are still being implicated mm-hmm. right to the very end. So it's 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 ambiguous, I yeah. would say, about who who did that. But um I think that all uh rolls together into Bolingbroke just being this kind of stock 2d ish kind of character where he's he's really more of a plot device than anything at the end of the day well and and that that leads me to the next point i wanted to talk about which is um bolingbroke as yeah a stock character a machiavellian character Mm -hmm. who really just steps in and um and kind of does what he needs to do to to secure himself and do what do what needs to be done yeah. i guess yeah. it's it's all means to an end really um when he's banished there's um there is some some genuine emotion there when he's saying goodbye to his father john of gaunt mm-hmm. and um his consternation uh bolingbroke's consternation at the fact that richard can banish Mowbray for life, banish him for ten years, but then in a in a with a wave of his hand, in a breath, a king's breath can mm-hmm. take four years off of that sentence. It means nothing, yeah. and I think that signals to the audience that the king's words are, are not to be trusted. Yeah, yeah not yeah. not just not to be trusted, but they're not official. They're yeah, not the yeah. word of God. They're not. No. They're just the yeah. up to the whims of the man. Yeah. Right. And Bolingbroke is kind of the audience's voice at that moment, I think, for for that reason. Yeah, and that, yeah. I think, sets up the animosity that he feels towards his cousin, which we don't know how that, what relationship yeah, they had before. From, yeah. But um, but Bolingbroke is, is exiled. His father dies in the meantime, and he's disinherited, and then comes back to reclaim his land. Ostensibly. Ostensibly. And then eventually takes over the crown, which... Um, I think is just he he's such a flatterer he's such a, he has such a way of getting to yeah. what he wants that when he meets so again Richard doesn't meet Henry's army at any point mm. he just waits for him to advance and then when Henry does reach Richard they have this talk it it reminds me of uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail yeah you know yeah. Uh, thoughts in your general direction right there's some guy up on the rampart and yeah. there's some guy down below and they're talking about what they're gonna do and yeah. pigeons or whatever <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the bird is the swallows swallows yes. thank you yeah, for involved yeah. <laughs> um but uh that's that's you know he says i'm only here to get my land back you give me my land i'll leave i'll yeah. put my arms down i'll walk away everything's good and of course that's not what happens because he's he's manipulating the situation and i think even richard knows that he's manipulating well, he the does, situation well he does because right away richard 
is like, oh yeah, you're like basically paraphrasing, but he's like, oh yeah, you're land. Okay. But that's not really what it is, is it? Yeah. We're going to London, aren't we? Yeah. So that you can take the crown. Right. right. And, he, and that's how that scene ends is just, uh, Richard's yeah. or Henry, sorry, saying, yes, that's Let's right. Go to London. <laughs> yeah. yeah right? And it, it's in a very abrupt thing. And it's, it's kind of cuts through all the pretense of that Henry has built up. And that's, that's one of, again, Richard's kind of, um, positive features i would mm. say is just the fact that he is a very intelligent it's not like he's like well i don't know what's happening here guys yeah. like he's not he's not like uh henry the sixth who was ambivalent yeah. about ruling or um weak-minded even yeah. the, richard knows exactly what's going on yeah. the fact that he can't do anything about it is vexing to him but it's mm-hmm. not um but at the same time he kind of he's made in some ways uh that death of king's speech is him yeah. making peace with it already right so the last half of the play is basically the process of him actually handing over the crown right. and eventually his life, yeah. um, which is an interesting way to stage a, like to structure a play about someone getting usurped. You think it would right. be like, that would be the climax is when he gets yeah. the crown taken away. Like yeah. it would all be from Henry's point of view as he gathers an army and rushes back and yeah. does what's right and sets the country right. But it's like Richard the third. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Against Richard the third. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But when this Richard gets <laughs> disinherited, yeah. uh, it's, it's focused on him and it's focused on that internal um, process that he goes through. And it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. And um, Richard the second is a history play because we're told it's a history play. It's based on the Chronicles, Holland's mm-hmm. head uh, or Holland's heads chronicles. I can't yes. even say the word, um, but it's a named play. And, and I feel like that's in the, in this case, the original title of this play was The Tragedy of Richard II. Yeah. So I feel like that's earned because we get to see the downfall of this character um, through to his death, which is not a death in battle like Richard III or um, Henry V, even though we don't see his death on screen or on, on stage. Um, so there's there's something, I think, that carries through. It's this... It's this interesting dynamic that that Richard has to this ability to, um, as we mentioned before, be humanized, but also to um, almost act as the 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 character that that questions the divine right of kings itself. Yeah, it's almost like he's set up. And this was this to was interesting. Show the flaws the, of the idea yeah, of the exactly, of the yeah, and and that was something that the Folger essay mm-hmm. kind of dealt with was, can we read Richard II as this oblivious dunce who who is, you know, completely doesn't understand how things are are how his actions are going to affect him. Or should we see him as a character that is full no with full knowledge, is is mocking kingship. Yeah. And and I think that gives Richard more credit than he's been given before. Yeah. It's an interesting way to read the play. And and if that's the case, then the mockery that is and it is this whole play kind of has us questioning what is the the place of kings yeah. in in a a monarchy or in society at all. Um if that question is being asked by the king himself, yeah, you know, the that, portal to God, yeah, really. like doesn't that doesn't that 
Isn't that and, interesting? Well, it is. And, it, and the fact that he is described that way uh, by a number of characters as being, you know, the deputy of the, the yeah. Lord on Earth uh, in England mm-hmm. is is very telling that he can be replaced so easily that perhaps God doesn't have much to do with this. And Richard, I don't think, I'm trying to remember the speeches. I don't think he himself refers to himself uh, in that in that way. I think he refers to himself as Adam. And he does yeah. talk about Cain and Abel. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's, there's but definitely it's not, some... But you're right. I, it's imagery, it's yeah. uh, John of Gaunt, I think, or the Duke of York. Yeah, the Duke of, of York refers yeah. to him as, as you know, his God-givenness or yeah. that. Um, it's, it's other characters, and especially his uncles, who really do... They're... Old guard, they're yeah, yeah, you know, they're, yeah, they're, and their their brother well, they knew was the, last, the great exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they they really firmly believe in the divine right of kings. Yeah. Um, but then we have this this middling generation, those damn millennials who yeah. just they don't they're questioning they, everything, yeah, and killing right? industries, killing the god with, with their avocado toast. <laughs> um, but but they are they kind of are, and you and Bolingbroke really represents that, yeah, at that new guard that comes in. Yeah. And, um, and I think this leads really nicely into the next point that I want to talk about, which is the father-son dynamic that plays comes into play throughout this play. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, all the talk of um, Richard II not living up to his father, who didn't get to be king, yeah. but was a great... He was referred to as Prince. Mars, yeah, I think, yeah. his, on the battlefield. Yeah. He was just a great man. And his grandfather, who was this great Edward III. Um we have the Duke of York and his son, uh, O'Merrill. Yeah. We have John of Gaunt and Bolingbroke. And there are so many, you know, the divide between father and son is what will echo throughout the Wars of the Roses. As we know, um, we have, you know, all those horrible battles that where men were, fathers were fighting their sons and sons were killing their fathers. And we have that great scene in Henry VI where... Great. The, well... Little cliche scene of Henry the, VI. Yeah. Yes, but it 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 happened. Let's yeah, just yeah. where a father and son lament um, killing each other. Lament yeah. killing, yeah. yeah. And so it's something that is that is very cleverly set up here. You don't even really notice that it's happening until it's yeah, happening, yeah. and and it's all played out in um, the way that John of Gaunt um, holds allegiance to the king, even though the king has personally hurt him and banished his the fruits of his loins i guess um and then he dies without seeing him again uh which is what leads henry to come back in and take over and then we have um the duke of york who again holds firm to the king and when O'Merle, who has such allegiance to Richard as a person. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have allegiance to the crown. He doesn't have allegiance to the station. He no. has allegiance to the man. Um, when the Duke of York, when his father doesn't doesn't understand that allegiance, he turns around and wants to turn his son in for treason after he finds out that O'Merle has, um, is part of a plot to kill Bolingbroke, Henry IV. Mm-hmm. And I think that... Um, the fact that you have this this old guard, this older generation that is that is loyal to the station, loyal to the crown, and you have a younger generation that doesn't give two shits about that, yeah. and they just want to they hold more sway in what the men 
are doing. What yeah. what yep. what is the content of this man's character, and yep. can I trust him? Yep. For Omeral, he can trust Richard II, and it's played really interestingly in the Royal Shakespeare Company yeah. version, where there's a uh, even though Omeral and Richard are cousins, yeah. um, there's a little bit of a, a, a homoerotic uh, <laughs> subtext going yeah, on there. No, it's it's not just sub; it's in the text. <laughs> well, okay, uh, but anyway. Um, it's it's uh, and then and then for Henry who just he doesn't he doesn't care that he's going to usurp a king because he doesn't believe that the king is worth Saving. his yeah or yeah. his weight and salt so yeah. um but that's that's where I think it's interesting in this play that it's it's showing a generational divide almost that mm-hmm. there's this difference in approach between fathers and sons. Yeah. Whereas the later Wars of the Roses plays, which were written earlier in the Shakespearean chronology, um, deal with fathers and sons blindly killing each other in battle. Here, there's like a there's a blind allegiance to. Well, it's it's not even a blind allegiance. It's a it's a it's a thoughtful allegiance, but they're different allegiances. Yeah, and the the previous ones didn't. It was a simplistic, like, oh, fathers and sons killing each other. Ain't yeah. that bad. The Wars yeah. of the Roses sucked. And here it is, it does have this philosophical disagreement about yeah. what's important between yeah. the generations. Yeah. And so it has a lot more weight. It's a lot more yeah. interesting to read and think about these characters going through these uh, things. And I, I finally coming back to my second most interesting character, which was the Duke of York. Right. Um, because he does express this, uh, you know, philosophical love of... Wow, I can't talk very well. Uh, this this love of country, and yeah. it's the love of England. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of talk of England in this in yes. this play. You've mentioned it already, but the, um, it's very much described as a positive place. I think yes. it's kind of like referring more to the England that uh, the people of Shakespeare's time yes. would have recognized because yes. it was peaceful, uh, which it was in this time too, before you know Richard had became uh, was usurped. Yeah, this sceptered isle. Exactly, right? yeah. and so it it builds up this very very positive image of England. Yeah. Um, and Duke of York really acts as the protectorate for that. It's almost like he's actually the hand of God here because right. he's the one who does ultimately decide to side with Bolingbroke and take uh, Richard's throne from him. Yeah. Uh, and then he's, especially in the performance that uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company performance that we watched, um, he is super angry at his son as soon yes. as his son, you know, justifiably wants to get revenge on the man who's, dethroned his best friend slash lover and uh you know and by all rights is the rightful king of england like the fact that york uh has no patience and no uh possible concern for the idea of putting richard back on the throne right um shows that he doesn't actually care about either the person of Richard or the kingship of Richard. Right. He cares about what's best for England yes. and Henry is better for England by sure. all measures. Yes. So he's kind of this, this extra presence between in between God and, and yeah. King and between Richard man and Richard King yeah. is this kind of intermediary of the Duke of York, you know, deciding what's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's interesting that you get his reaction to his son's betrayal in far more detail and you get a bit of domesticity to it because his wife is there and there's a funny back and forth between them. So you get, you get a lot more of the interiority of that character in that scene, Mm -hmm. which is way later in the play after his key moment of deciding who will be King has already been made. And so it's very revealing uh, as to his character and his, his role in this um, kind of after the fact. 
Yeah, and and it's what he views as important, which I think is um, really fascinating because we also get his wife's yeah per perception or perspective. I guess yeah. is the word I'm looking for um, because she can't see Omar as anything other than her son and she's like they're old she's like can I give you any more children we can this is our only child which is not true they had three children but um in in reality yeah. but but Omar is the only child there and you're gonna give him up to the king to be executed because you know he wants to defend the previous king that you also would have defended yeah. but I mean but didn't but but didn't yeah so <laughs> yeah. um so that's that is such a fascinating moment of mm-hmm. family life, of yes. the differences that fathers and mothers have towards their children, yeah. but also in the way that um, kingmakers, I guess, yeah. have towards king breakers. Yeah. No, I'm trying to. I'm reaching traitors. For it. I guess traitors. Yeah. But yeah. but like it's and then and then how these these women just step in and and yeah. eventually, I mean, Omerl is is. Um, uh, not executed and becomes a loyal man for the for Henry the Fourth, but yeah, and in the Royal Shakespeare Company production, he's actually the assassin who kills Richard, Richard. which is yeah. which is an interesting and, uh, choice. Yeah, it's yeah. not in the text, but it's yeah. a it's a yeah a very bold choice. But yeah. um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, I think the the father son dynamic is is an absolutely fascinating one in this play, and it, you're right, it does have much more depth and carries much more weight than any of the previous father-son dynamics that we've seen thus far and really paves the way for things like Hamlet that are to come. Once more into the breach, dear friends! Once more! Or close the wall up with our English dead! Another thing, Lindsay, just to briefly mention, um, we talked about this off the top, but it is a very uh, well-written play, especially at certain points. Um, There's some great speeches. uh, Mowbray... Uh, who's the guy who gets exiled along with uh, Bolingbroke. Bolingbroke at the start of the play. He has a great speech in the third scene about uh, dying a silent death mm. and, uh, you know, leaving England. Uh, it's, again, a, a great connection to uh, the language and the people. It's it's just a, it's a great, great little speech. I, if I leave this land, I'm, I'm, I'm voiceless. Like, yeah, I can't, yeah. my native I've tongue, I've yeah. been muted. You're yeah. killing my voice, yeah. which is just, for a writer to be writing that, yeah. Yeah, it's it brilliant. Good. It's good. Uh, there, there is a scene with the gauges <laughs> in the fourth oh act when God. everybody's throwing down gauges and picking them up. Like, and she's like, "Give me, I need a gauge. I'll, I'll fight you. I'll fight you. I'll do it. Fight? Yeah, I'll, I'll do it right you. now." I, that was hilarious. Like, it is. That was, it's hilarious that was, to read. It's hilarious <laughs> to watch. Yeah, it's a ridiculous scene. It shows the absolute pomposity of these characters yes. who just can't get over themselves. But at the same time, they're trying to like suck up to the new king, of course, Henry. So it's it's understandable. It's it's really good um and then yeah some of richard's speeches are just just really incredible mm-hmm. um although my favorite thing of this whole play uh was revealing to me uh in act three scene two line 131 uh, i don't remember exactly what this is. i just wrote down the line number but it's it's uh <laughs> someone's asking oh oh it's richard asking a uh, messenger or courtier or something like that like um oh did my green and uh, Bushy or whatever their his little sycophantic yeah. guys uh, were named. Uh, did they did they uh, did they negotiate or something with Henry? Yeah. And of course they've been killed. Yes. But the the guy responds in a way that just instantly reminded me of Rest <laughs> yes. Development. It's the doctor who just like 
says something but means the exact opposite. Oh, he's all right. Because <laughs> he lost his left arm. He's all right now. Only his right hand. Yes, exactly. He's yeah. Like, and, yes, they have negotiated. Yeah, they negotiated into they're, a grave. Yes. It's like, no, just say they're dead. They're dead, <laughs> yeah. But no, they never do. And there's so many Shakespearean characters like that and mm-hmm. I, I love it i love mm-hmm. the fact that arrested development came back to this 400 <laughs> years later and was like you Did know it's a good game link arrested development to shakespeare absolutely we Brilliant. should have we should have done it earlier um so yeah just a, a wonderfully written play i didn't care for it much on the reading i have to say Lindsay. i know and you I were really you did. were enjoying it i, I know, really the did. whole time i i've been reading in in class i've yeah. actually instituted uh 10 minutes of silent reading at the start of every one of my english classes solely for the purpose of reading <laughs> richard ii during school hours and it's worked it, it has worked and and it's hard to put down but i think it's because there's some really beautiful language in here there's yeah. the the speeches we've already mentioned but um the uh, speech that came to mind as as we were sitting down to record this was when um richard is coming down from his tower uh at the beck and call of the traitors and he starts talking about how um oh yeah no okay all right you you call i'll come you know because something about larks and night hawks or something yeah. being switched in in yeah. position yeah. because how right is it for a king to come when he's beckoned yeah. and and then that is also referenced kind of a little bit later on when when bolingbroke flatters um richard when henry has already been crowned yeah, king yeah. and he's like oh i'm better than a king because when i was a king i had many flatters but they were my subjects but now a king <laughs> is flattering me, me. Yeah. so i'm better yeah. and and just <laughs> Things like that that just are really the the giving his crown. Um, I know, no, I like back and yeah, forth with yeah. you know, and the way that that can be read as I being yes or I being yeah. me, I yeah. like the personal pronoun yeah. I um, is just it's so playful and it's it leads to different interpretations. It's just really a, a wonderful play to kind of fall into the language of, and it's it's not well. Uh, or or popularly produced. No. So well, it's just kind of interesting. Well, I think, and that's why I didn't like it initially, because initially when you're reading it for the first time, and I think mm-hmm. I'd actually read this many, many years ago, but this is my first time in a long time, uh, you read it for plot, and there's not much plot. Right. All the plot happens in those first two scenes when, sure. you know, he breaks up the, the duel, and then he takes all the land, and then Henry's coming back. And then everything else after that is, there's not really any anything going on. It's literally just Richard, like I've said, giving mm-hmm. up the crown. So... Uh, this is a far more meditative play in that respect. So it's yeah. not it's not great to, for me at least, I was like, okay, when's the next important thing happening? That's not the play. No. Um, the play is about these characters. Exactly. And what are they going to do? Exactly. And when you have, you know, David Tennant on stage, uh-huh. de- you know, delivering these lines and creating this character um, and giving him all these attributes, that's much more enjoyable. Yeah. So I, I enjoyed watching it much more yeah. than reading. Yeah. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. So one other thing that I that I wanted to bring up uh, before we get into our debate, yeah. um, this fascinating story that Aiden didn't know about. So uh, will you will you let me tell Please, the story? Please, by all means. Okay. So Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex, had planned a rebellion to overthrow Elizabeth I. And he instructed his men to pay the Chamberlain's men, Lord Chamberlain's men, which was Shakespeare's performance company, uh, to put on a production of Richard II the night before he was planning to overthrow Elizabeth. 
And they were like, no, we're not going to put it on. It's not a popular play. It's too old. At that point, it was six years old. This was happening in 1601. It's not going to bring in the numbers. Uh, The audience isn't going to be interested. We're not going to put it on. They offered to pay significant amount more than the asking price to put on a production Mm -hmm. and the lord chamberlain's men were like all right we'll do it for the money uh they put on this production of the play 12 or 13 of essex's men show up to the performance and they get all riled up because they're about to overthrow a queen the next day fortunately or unfortunately depending on which side you're on the essex rebellion was squashed the next day and apparently the queen asked the Lord Chamberlain's men to reprise Richard II the night before uh, the execution of the men who were in charge of this rebellion. Um, uh. She was quite aware of the fact. I think she mentioned to the the stationer uh, or somebody involved with with the the plays that don't you know that I am Richard II? Do you not see that? Yeah. Uh, so she understood very well what the symbolism was of putting on this play the night before rebellion was was scheduled to happen. Yeah. Um, I think that's just such a fascinating that story. Is a great and, story. And, and it's it's uh, it takes like Twitter subtweeting <laughs> to like yeah. a whole new level uh, and the, the literary he, shade if, being if thrown. If she would have made them brilliant. watch it right before they kill, Th- that killed them, that would have been, been, been great. Particularly but I just wonder why we don't use literature this way anymore. <laughs> like why don't we, why aren't people putting on uh, well, plays about on a... overthrowing <laughs> presidents, you know, yeah. during an impeachment trial, for example. Yeah. Like, why don't people do I'm this sure anymore? I'm sure that will happen at some point. If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. So our ancient bickerings this week um, comes back to the age-old question that we seem to run into every time there's a named Richard. Uh, is this character a tragic hero or not? Yes. Um, Aiden, I will let you go first. I will say not. Not? not. Interesting. Uh, and It's not like we've discussed this before. <laughs> Yes, your interesting was very well yes. delivered there, Lindsay, for being completely fake. Um, so I, I, I having, although I actually having listened to you make a very good case for why you could interpret it this way, I, I feel like I'm probably setting myself up fairly here, but I feel like he's not a, a tragic figure in the sense that um, there's no individual turning point. Uh, it seems like him losing the crown was something that was just inevitably going to happen. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't fit that traditional kind of, uh, you know, his downfall comes in the third act when his fatal flaw, you know, prevents him from achieving his goals or whatever. Right. Right. Like it doesn't, it doesn't fit structurally. I'd I'd say that much for sure. Um, Also, he's not tragical because uh, you don't really care for him throughout um, and the reason I think you don't really side with him, like I didn't, I thought it was interesting, but I kind of, I'm kind of glad he wasn't king anymore because yeah. everybody agreed he was a terrible king. Um, and the reason uh, that's important is that he's not sympathetic in any way. And okay. the reason he's not sympathetic is because he has no self-reflective thinking whatsoever. He is trapped yes he very eloquently explains being trapped between a king and a human um roles (laughs) but he's he's not aware of his failings as either he's not a very good human either is my is part of the problem right like nobody really likes him except for omarill in this whole situation his wife kind of likes his wife likes him and his his sycophantic trio kind of like him until one of them backstabs him i think Mm. uh 
but he's never like aware of like, oh yeah, I like throughout his whole downfall, he never once says, what did I do badly as a king? Cause mm-hmm. he doesn't care. He thinks he should be king no matter what. He's not even willing to uh, expand his thinking to see why someone might want to dis take him off the throne. Uh, and I feel like that that hurts his relatability in a lot of ways. As much as he's interesting and able to relate this kingship uh, human duality, he the human side is just not enjoyable. <laughs> I don't care for him as a human. He wasn't a good king. I don't care if he falls down and hurts himself or gets stabbed in the back. Sorry. So he's not tragic in, in my mind. That's my reasoning. Okay. Lindsay, explain right. how I'm right. By trying to explain how I'm wrong. Well, I think to understand what a tragic hero is, you need to go back to Aristotle's definition of a tragic hero, which is a character who must evoke pity or fear within the audience. They they must have that that effect. Um, And their change of fortune must go from good to bad. Okay? Mm -hmm. Um, I think both of those things are present in Richard II in a way that they aren't in... A play such as Richard III. A, a character like Richard III shows no remorse. There's no real moment in the play when the audience is led to pity him. Not in the same way that we do Richard II. Now, I will grant you, Richard II is not the best king. He is not someone that I would want leading my country. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a given. But he is a product of a system that doesn't allow for him to have the kind of introspection that you're demanding he has. Mm. And the the to the extent that he exhibits that, he is showing a kind of a depth of understanding of why his situation is the way it is. And I think that is where that the change in fortune happens. He realizes that he's messed up, that things aren't going to go his way. And he laments the loss of his previously high status and good fortune. And I think that is all that is required for us to see him as a, as a character who suffers a downfall. And to call it a tragic downfall, I only say that because we do get to see him as a human character. He's not just a king. In the first three acts, he acts haughty, high and mighty, and and does things without thinking, um, changes his mind. He's not someone that you would trust to have any decision-making power whatsoever. When his power is taken away and he's reduced to just being another subject of his cousin, the king, Henry IV, um, his, his station is such and his reflection is such that um the tragedy of his downfall really asserts itself and i think that is what makes him a a tragic hero and i i realize as i say that i, yeah. I hero i bulk a little bit at, <laughs> yeah but he definitely has a tragic um, arc to his, arc story, to his yeah. story yes yeah i mean you're not wrong also, just to, you know, put the nail in the coffin, the play was originally called The Tragedy of Richard II, so. And it was also called The Tragedy of Richard III, wasn't it? I don't think so. I don't think so either, actually. I think you just, just tried to make that up to see if I could slip that one by you, but you're a little too quick for me. That's fine. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, sure. But 
I think it fails at the feeling bad for him part because I never did. You never did. I never did. I thought it was an interesting uh, academic almost exploration of man versus king. Okay. I never really cared because I didn't – you don't see him as a person. You see him as a bad king and then all of a sudden he's a person and he's just a whiny bitch. Because he's terrible at being... But he was always a person. And he no, just... I, I, he couldn't... I, I look at this yeah. as kind of the same way that, you know, currently right now there's the the quote-unquote crisis in the monarchy because... <laughs> Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have left the monarchy. They've left the royal family. They are they are no longer senior members of the, of the royal family. Makes it. And... Yes, makes it. Whatever <laughs> makes it. you want to call it. Um, and, and I feel like... The, the some of the commentary that's going around about Prince Harry is that he's never been a, a person. He's now currently on Vancouver Island as of, we're recording this podcast. Um, there's, you know, editorials in the paper about how you should approach the royals if you see them out hiking on Vancouver Island. Um, don't initiate contact first because, the, you know, Harry is still royalty. It's in his blood and he, he doesn't know how to react in the wild to normal <laughs> humans. Which is ridiculous because I think <laughs> Harry is one of the most approachable and relatable royals there is. But yeah. um, I, I feel like that's kind of what we have going on here with Richard, that he's someone who was brought up to be king, became king at such a young age. He doesn't have the chance to to know what being a human is like. Yeah. So when he all automatically has that thrust upon him, you know... It's like the opposite of some men are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Well, in this case, there's this this awful humanity that is thrust upon him, and he doesn't react well to it. But can you blame him? He doesn't know how to, right? He's the guy that, that the Toronto Star yeah. should be writing editorials about how to <laughs> shake their hand, uh, you know, when you encounter them in Lynn yeah. Canyon, Well, see that, and, and that's the interesting thing is I, I agree, and I think that's actually what makes Henry the sixth during his downfall yeah. a much more humanist kind of human humanist humanist Humanistic? human hum, hum. human he's a human, human. but the humanist character, is a different word shush your okay. mouth and <laughs> I love you Lynn's. uh there but he's because he does he has these more kind of uh his natural speech about wanting to be a shepherd yeah and not... yeah 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 he, no, he, totally. he understands the plight of the common people in a way that no none of the characters here really do care about and arguably all. he he was six months old or whatever when yeah, he, he was made king, king. So yeah so he, I, and he I had even it. less yeah he yeah had less chance so but, i i just but, eh, i don't know i in, i do the, feel uh, yeah, okay. bad for richard you I don't. don't i don't so he fails well, so we're both right because i <laughs> failed because your definition because and, emotions are subjective yes <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say goodnight till it be morrow. So, Aiden, what's next on our docket? Uh, next up, we have a special episode on Shakespeare's portraits. Ooh. Paintings, pictures, woodcuts of the man himself. Yes. Uh, it's an interesting... Ostensibly. Well, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting little topic. I know you know a bunch about it. Lindsay was an art history minor. Well... Kind of. Kind of. Almost. In name only. Yeah. Maybe that's a story for our next podcast. I can get into the failings of the University of Alberta's <laughs> department or fine arts area yeah uh, uh but that's that's what we're going to talk about uh next episode and then after that i believe Lindsay, correct me if i'm wrong 
Midsummer Night's Dream. Correct. Yes. And we are very excited to be able to go see uh, the production of Midsummer Night's Dream yes. this weekend, actually, yes. as we're recording this podcast. So last um, weekend when you're hearing it, yes. if you download it really. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it's it's a a winter themed Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, which could be interesting. Yeah. So we'll yeah. Uh, hopefully have a little bit to report back on the Malachite's production of the the winter Winter Shakespeare Festival um, Midsummer Night's Dream. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.